The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So you have Bibles underneath the front seats of the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take one, leave with it. Don't leave the house of God without it. Page 573, Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. Thanks for being here, everybody. Such a great honor for me to spend this time with you. I'm excited to look at God's word with you. Let's pray together one more time. Holy Spirit of God, we just invite you here, Lord, and I pray that you would preach a better sermon than I ever could and that you would shine the light of Jesus Christ in a deeper and more profound way into each of our hearts and minds than you ever have before. And I don't pray this because I'm worthy of it or because I'm great at anything, but just because you're a kind and gracious God. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Washington Post had an, uh, this is, a, is this a little loud for you guys? It's a little loud for me. Turn that down just a little bit so I don't get distracted. Thank you. Let's give Larry a hand. It's hard to do tech work. All right, I'm starting over. You ready? A Washington Post opinion piece from November had this title. America is losing ground to death and despair. And it described in that article how life expectancy in the U.S. fell for the second time in three years, driven by a surge in drug overdoses and suicides. Uh, In 2016, there was a New York Times article about how the suicide rate had risen to a 30-year high. And in that article, Robert Putnam, uh, he's a professor of public policy at Harvard, he connected that trend to, um, among other things, a sense of hopelessness in the nation. 
A recent article in week.com said the country is consumed by anxiety and it's getting worse. Nearly one third of adolescents and adults suffer from some form of anxiety disorder, according to this article. One third. A poll released in May by the American Psychiatric Association found that 39% of respondents describe themselves as more anxious now than they were a year ago. Why do I tell you all this? It sounds like there's a sense of gloom and despair in our society. And I wonder, can you feel it? Can you feel it? Do you sense it? Do you sense it even in yourself? Does it kind of haunt you in the corners of your life? Now, you might say, well, Merry Christmas, Matt. Um, you know, thanks for the, thanks for the cheer up there. Um, and I think our author today would say to that, you know what, you've never had a legit celebration of Christmas until you've really started in the darkness. So a lot of times when we're thinking about Christmas, right, if you're a Christian, our minds go backwards. What do you think of? You've heard this before, right? Shepherds, angels, mangers, we're looking, we're looking back. Well, this morning I wanna look even further back Way, way back. Uh, we're going to think about the message of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. And when we consider his words, we're looking at something uh, mind-blowingly old. So these, are the, the, these original words maybe were written 700 years before Jesus. So add that mess up. That's like 2,700 years ago for us. So 700 years before Jesus. What was seven years Several hundred years before today. So it's 2018, that's 1318, right? You know what's happening in 1318? In 1307, King Edward died while on campaign against Robert the Bruce. And uh, you might not be an historian, but anybody ever seen Braveheart? Okay, all right, all right. So from Jesus to Isaiah is the same distance from us to Braveheart. That is so long. You almost can't capture it. And the reason I'm saying this is because you might think, well, it's so long, we can't know that anything we're reading here actually happened or was actually written, right? Because if you're, if you're looking at a message that, that, that is that long, that had to get changed over time. You know, it's more mythology at this point. You can't really trust it. You know, for, for a while, the earliest copy we had of the book of Isaiah was dated from 900 A.D. So I'm telling you, Isaiah was written 700 B.C.-ish. We had a copy from 900 A.D., 900 plus 700, 1600. That is so long, hard to fathom. But you know, in 1947, they discovered, anybody ever heard of these? The Dead Sea Scrolls. And in that collection of scrolls, they found a manuscript of, the cop of Isaiah dated from 1,000 years earlier than the earliest one we had before. Wow. And you know what? Here, here's, where the, here's where the money is. When they compare those two documents, they match. And uh, one quote I want to share with you from an Isaiah scholar, J. Alec Mateer, this is what he said. The overwhelming identity of this text with the Masoretic text indicates the reliance we can place on what we have inherited and the astonishing care and accuracy of the copyists. 
So when we go way, way back here to think about something about Christmas and we read Isaiah, you're, you're looking at the real thing, at something foretold long, long, long ago about something that would happen. So just a little background on Isaiah. Isaiah is talking at Israel in this epic book and he's constantly moving, you'll notice as you read it, from judgment to hope, judgment to hope, judgment to hope. So judgment because the the people of Israel led by unrighteous kings, they're continually breaking their covenant with God. They have kind of a, a marriage with God, if you will, and they're more and more unfaithful. They're more and more adulterous. And so Isaiah's preaching judgment. God is holy, he's righteous, he's a judge. He's gonna judge the people. And so as we get into chapter eight, it's that theme of judgment. And Isaiah is saying to them, can't you see you're in darkness? So you just, if you just let your eyes move around here in chapter eight, look at the heading over chapter eight. The coming Assyrian invasion. Can you imagine if a, if a brutal nation came and totally overwhelmed us um, and marched right through us, sent our people into exile. Can you imagine the societal, economic, psychological instability that would take place? That's the context of what's going to happen here. It happened uh, in detail in 722 BC. But Isaiah is saying this, this instability that you're experiencing politically and societally comes from a spiritual instability. Look at Isaiah 8, 20 to 22. Look at Isaiah 8, 20 to 22. This is what Isaiah says to the people. This is kind of that judgment motif. He says... Um, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. So just pause here. I want, I want you to think about this issue of how he's confronting them and how he's using the illustration of light and dark. If they won't speak according to this word, it's because they have no what? Dawn. So, so just first principle in the pattern. What are the people rejecting? They won't speak according to this word. God has spoken through his word. And so when you reject God's word as your authority, as your, as your source for life and meaning, you're rejecting God. And when you reject God, if you're rejecting the one who's made everything, who is meaning, truth, and beauty, the light, if you will. And there's no dawn, there's no sunrise in the morning. Sense of hopelessness, darkness. Verse 21, they'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. How do they, how do they feel? Distressed lost in this darkness. So once you reject God, there's a consequences for that. There's pain that comes with that, brokenness that comes with that. They'll be enraged, he says, and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. Third thing to see, so they've rejected God, there's no dawn. Now they're in distress because of that, and now they're speaking contemptuously against God. So there's consequences for their rejecting God, and who are they mad at for the consequences? God, it's your fault, right? And then verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom and anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. What, is, what does darkness mean to Isaiah here? It's just life without God, separated from God, disengaged from God, no intimacy with God. And then the loss of everything you lose when you lose God. That's dark. Now, why, do, 
Why do we look at this? Because we have, to, we have to be able to see the darkness to enjoy the light. We have to be able to see the darkness to enjoy the light. You know, in verse 22, it says they will look to the earth. What do you think that means? What is he talking about? Well, here's what I think it's getting at. The human heart longs for certain things, and you can't get away from it. You can't escape it. You need something to find your identity in. You need some sort of authority to tell you what's true and what's false, right and wrong. You need something to hope in. You need something to satisfy you. You need some sort of a way to understand your identity and who you are. You need meaning and value. You need happiness. You long for it. You cannot escape any of those things. And there's a vacuum that occurs when you reject God. When you, when you look for things that only God can give, identity, hope, meaning, security, all that stuff. When you, when you reject him and say, no, we don't want you, now there's a vacuum. And what, what are you going to do with this need that your heart has? You're going to look to somewhere else to fill it. You're going you're gonna to look to the earth. Uh, this is what Isaiah is saying to the Israelites. Look at Isaiah 8:19. Look at where the people are trying to find their meaning, their truth. Their hope. Isaiah 8, 19. When they say to you, inquire of the, of the what? Mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter? Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So you guys, they're going to their neighborhood psychic. They're going to fortune tellers to find hope, to find truth, to find identity. They're looking to the earth. Um, you might say, well, that's strange, old school stuff. Has nothing to do with me and my day. I was really surprised to see on Yahoo News this week. Did anybody else see this? Article, witchcraft moves to the mainstream in America as Christianity declines. Hosts of uh, especially millennials are going to straight-up witchcraft. In the article, it says, witchcraft is thriving in the U.S. with an estimated 1.5 Americans now identifying as witches more than the total number of Presbyterians. It does ring out to our day, I think. But even if you're like, well, okay, that's interesting for them, it doesn't work that way for me. I don't, I don't know. Do you ever, are you ever tempted to find your hope, meaning, security, joy, identity in things that aren't God? I do it all the time. I do it all the time. Where do you, where do you go to assure yourself that you're okay? That you have significance? That there's actually hope for you in your situation? That you have value or that you're praiseworthy? Where do you go to look for that? What, what are you leaning on? Are you looking to the earth? And then, because if you are, it's going to lead to darkness and despair. You know, just think of kind of the big picture of these kind of articles I'm throwing at you. Think about our society. If you're like, well, you know, that, that hocus pocus stuff, that's for superstitious people. I'm, I'm a more intellectual kind of a person. Okay, think about the, the big sweeps of our society, right? Uh, if, you're, if you're very old uh, at all, 
do you think you see a trend of our society moving away from a belief in like a transcendent God, pushing that away and replacing that with the autonomy, the independence of the individual, right? In our society, how do you know what's right? It's, it's what you feel is right, yeah? Um, how do you know what's true? Well, as long as it's too kind of authority in the self, right? And that's, that's just culture. But our culture is also throwing another message at us, right? Because we're materialists. And so you, you, go to, you go to college and you learn that um, everything just evolved randomly and by chance, right? And uh, that there's no designer involved in it. So simultaneously, our society is telling you, you need to be the authority for what's right and wrong to make you happy, and you're an evolved bag of chemicals, and you don't really matter. What happens if you embrace those two things simultaneously? The only hope is in you, and you have no hope. It's despair. It's looking to the earth. We need, we need the victorious light, don't we? We need the victorious light. Look at this promise that Isaiah gives. All I want for today is for us to see the darkness and then adore the light. Look at this promise of light, verse one. So verses one to two, there'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So you see, Isaiah said, hey, this was so dark, but all of a sudden light is gonna come. And then he mentions these cities. In the former time, he brought in contempt, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. You're like, well, who cares about these cities? Well, I told you, right, Assyria is gonna come and take over the nation. Well, guess what, guess what highway Assyria's road, guess, guess what cities the road goes through, okay? It's these guys. So this is the place where it was darkest, Isaiah is saying. In the place where it was darkest, what's gonna happen? In the latter time, he's made glorious that way. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness, so that's an idea of lifestyle. It had just painted their heads, how they thought. It painted their hearts. They lived in it. They couldn't get out of it. And all of a sudden, light is shining in the darkest places, now there is truth, now there is hope, now there is meaning, now there is joy. In the darkest dark, the brightest light. Do you see his promise? Not only that, you are gonna get the spoils of an incredible victory. So look at verse three. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Well, why do ancient people like the harvest? It's just thriving, right? And do you like to get a raise at work? Yay, okay. It's, it's thriving. You can afford the things you need. You can enjoy some things. And then for them to say they're, they're glad when they divide the spoil. Now, that's kind of old world talk. Um, in the ancient days, right, if there's a war and uh, you defeat your enemies, well, there's their camp where they were camping when they were fighting you, and what's all up in their camp? Bling. <laughs> stuff. And if you beat them, guess what you get to have? The stuff. Yay! <laughs> More stuff. The stuff we need, food, wealth, thriving. But not only that, the battle's over. Do you see how the boot of the warrior is getting thrown in the fire? The weapons are being tossed in the trash. 
It's a sense of there's peace. Our, our enemies have been destroyed and we're okay now and we have what we need. Light's coming and a victory, a wonderful victory is coming. Did you notice what he said? Um, the rod of the oppressor would be broken as on the day of Midian. Do you see that at the end of verse four? What does that mean? If you read the book of Judges, uh, there's a story in there about the Midianites and Amalekites coming out to destroy Israel. And in that text, it says, uh, the soldiers are like locusts in abundance. What do you think that means? So many. You ever, you ever watch a nature show about a swarm of locusts? It's, it's crazy. So millions and millions and millions blocking out the sun. That's what their soldiers are like. And it says in the story, the camels were like sand on the sea. Well, what does that mean? How many sands are on the sea? Lots. What are camels like? That's like a war horse, okay? It's like a little mini tank or something back then. You're on your camel. You're fighting your battle. They got so many soldiers and so many camels. And if you read that story, it's one of the strangest stories in the Bible. God intentionally keeps shrinking the Israelite army down to where they have 300 people. So you got 300 versus locusts and sands of the sea kind of an army. And you're like, hey, I saw that movie once, right? 300. That Gerhardt Butler guy, right? Well, it's not that kind of a 300 where they're all ripped and shredded and excellent warriors. It's farmers. And you know what they're carrying? Flashlights, horns, and crockpots. <laughs> and all at once, they make a noise. And then God steps in and wrecks the enemy army to where there's no one left. And so these people who did nearly nothing at all go in and enjoy a massive spoils of victory that they could never have accomplished on their own. So what's Isaiah saying is gonna come? Brilliant light to the most horrid darkness and an incredible victory for those who could never win the victory on their own. And he sounds pretty confident, doesn't he? This is going to happen. How? What could bring us that kind of light that changes everything, gives hope and joy and meaning and truth and thriving? What could give us that kind of a victory where we have this overwhelming harvest and spoil of a battle that we could never fight and never win on our own? What could give us that? And then this famous phrase, verse 6. It's the Old Testament Christmas bumper sticker. Verse six, for to us, what? A child is born. A child is born. Someone, one person is gonna come who is that light. And one person's gonna come who wins that victory. The child is born. And look what it says about him. We just ponder this person with me? First of all, it starts humble, doesn't it? For unto us a what? A child, usually if we're gonna talk about superheroes, we just go straight to the superhero part. This dude came. He was awesome. But no, we start with a what? A child. What's impressive or scary or intimidating about a baby? Nothing. He starts in humility. A child is born, a son is given, but what does he become? And the government shall be on his shoulder. What does that mean? 
Finally, we have a king who can wear the pressure, who can handle it, who can take us where we need to be. Finally, somebody who can wear this mantle of leading us where we need to go. And what a name. Will you look at this with me? This is 700 years before Jesus. First of all, wonderful counselor. What's a counselor? He comes and gives you the depths of wisdom that you need for all of life. He turns the light on for you in your mind on what things are for and why and how and where things are going. You understand truth. He's a counselor. Do you ever need a counselor? Somebody who can listen to you and understand where you're at and help move you in the right direction. He's a counselor, not just that. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. This is where uh, English words kind of let us down. Do you ever use the word wonderful? I don't know. Is that a ride at Disney or something? In Hebrew, if you look through it, through the Old Testament, wonderful just means like jaw-dropping beauty where you would just wanna stand there and stare at it and cherish it and adore it. He's, this person is beautiful. He's satisfying. Wonderful counselor. Then next you get mighty God. That word mighty means valiant or heroic, a champion, almost like a knight in shining armor, coming to rescue. He's mighty. And then it straight up says what? God. Your mind should be blown. I know you got 20-20 hindsight if you've been to church before, but here you have a child is coming, and what's one of his names? Mighty God. How's that work? That's what he's gonna be like. His name, we sang it in the first song this morning. What do we call him? Emmanuel, what does it mean? God with us? God with us? God with us? How much God? Fully God. With? How with? So with. In our skin. With who? Us? Us dark, messed up, confused, screwed up people? God with us. Mighty God, then he's called everlasting father. Well, what does everlasting mean? Unstopping, unchanging, undefeated, unending, unbeatable. He's gonna reign forever. He's called everlasting father. Now, some of you, if you got your Christian hat on, you're like, hold up. Why can't he be the everlasting father? Because he's the son. You feel, you feel me? Father here means the kind of leader that you would want. A benevolent, protecting authority. You could refer to a king as my father, and it means somebody who's in authority over you, but somebody who cares about you as he leads. He's loving. He, he wants to protect you and build you up and take care of you. He's, he lasts forever, and he's benevolent. Finally, he's the prince of peace. What does prince mean? He's a king. What does peace mean? A lot of times we think of peace as like an absence of conflict, and that, that is nice. But it means more than that. It means thriving. So if, you're, if you have peace in your relationships, you're thriving with those closest to you. You have a unity and an understanding. If you have peace in your economic situation, you have what you need. If you have peace in your society, we're doing well together. 
And, and what, is, what is one of this child's names? Prince of peace. When he reigns as king, we have peace and thriving like never before, ultimate peace. And then you look at God's promise here at the end of this description. What is that last sentence in verse seven? This king is gonna reign forever and ever. And who's gonna make sure it happens? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a promise. So what's Isaiah, what's Isaiah showing you so far? Darkness of life without God. Just like Israel, like us. And then what is he showing you? The promise of unbelievable, victorious light. Light that comes in the darkness and gives a victory like we could never achieve on our own, and it's gonna come through who? This mysterious son who becomes a king. Man who is also God. 700 years before Jesus. So here we are, 2,700 years after Isaiah. As you look back on history, honestly, have a good look. Is there anyone who can come close to fitting this description? Who do you got? You got anybody who brings peace like this? You got anybody who wins a victory like this? You got anybody who thinks, where you think, he might be God. Please look at all the philosophies and religious leaders of history. Please consider each one of them. Please look carefully. Do any of them have a resume that can fit with something like this? In all care and honesty, there is only one. There is only one. And his name is Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 to 16, Matthew, uh, this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, starts to give a description of where Jesus is going. And if you try to read it once, maybe this part didn't seem all that important to you. Matthew 4, 13. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by who? The prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen what? A great light. And there wasn't some truck with a big spotlight driving through the city. What's the light? Who's the light? It's Jesus. Look at Jesus' next line there in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, what? Repent, why? The kingdom is at hand. What is Jesus claiming about himself? I'm a king, but I'm not just a king. Matthew's telling you what, what, what king he is. He's that king. He's Isaiah 9 king. He's the child that's been born. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's the light. He's the light. Wow. It's him. He's the king. So let's be uh, skeptics just for a little bit. End of verse 7 in Isaiah, you get, hey, when he comes and he reigns, peace is going to grow and grow. At the increase of his government, there'll be no end. Justice and righteousness forevermore. So you're telling me, Isaiah says, you're going to get peace, justice, and righteousness. Jesus came 700 years later. He's not here anymore. Where's my peace, justice, and righteousness? Anybody want to throw that in there? Where is it? I want it. I don't see it. Anybody not see it? What do we do? 
Well, you realize part of the, part of the mystery of Jesus is that he takes a, a, a two-part effort to fulfill everything that he's gonna be and do for us. A two-part effort. One day he will come and reign explicitly with justice and peace forever. But he had to take care of something else first. The reason he became born into human flesh isn't just to reign. It's also to die. And Isaiah explains to us the mystery. Before he is the conquering king, he is the man of sorrows. Look at these verses in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And just ponder with me the the two sides of the truth of what Jesus is like. Mighty God Wonderful counselor, everlasting father, and here, man of sorrows. We look at it with me, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with what? Grief. If you're in darkness today, he's tasted that. He knows And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. How amazing that the light could come and we could look at the light and say, get out, we don't want you. But look at verse four. Surely, what has he done? He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now look at verse five. But he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Before Jesus is gonna bring ultimate peace, he had to earn your peace with God. Before the light could shine on everything, the light had to wear the darkness. Jesus had to save us from our sins by taking them for us in our place. Is anybody amazed that this is written 700 years before Jesus Christ? 700 years. Is anybody amazed by the beauty of Jesus Christ? That he is at once both the most majestic person to ever live and also the most humble, compassionate, caring person to ever walk the earth? He is both. Don't you need that in a wonderful counselor? What's amazing is As the light wears our darkness, it's here we see what Isaiah was getting at with Midian. What did we get in Midian? Do you remember? There's an enemy we can't get out from under and a battle we could never win on our own. And God steps in and gives us the spoils of a victory that we couldn't achieve. 
And now you consider Jesus and, and what we read earlier from Isaiah, that as he wears our sins, he then achieves the victory of saving his people. He rises from the dead. And now all of a sudden, you and I are staring at spoils, at a harvest, at a victory we could never win on our own that we now get to enjoy based on the work of someone else. Can you see it? How can you know you have forgiveness? That's the spoils of Jesus' war. He paid for your sins. How can you know if you honestly take stock of your life, what you've thought, what you've said, what you've done, how you've treated others, how can you know that you could be right with God and accepted by him? That's the spoils of Jesus' victory. He takes your sin and gives you his perfection. How can you know God himself and have significance and identity and meaning and truth and hope and peace? Where do you get all this? It's given to you through Jesus Christ. It's yours. How can you know you're gonna reign with him forever and even death is defeated? He's won the victory you could never win. And he gives it to you. In Christ, our great enemies are defeated. He really is mighty God, everlasting Father. So look what we're waiting for when he returns. Isaiah 65, 17 to 19. Savor this with me. Isaiah 65, 17 to 19. This is at Jesus' next return. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and what? Rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What is that place going to be like? Did you hear it? What happens to the darkness? It's gone. What happens to the mourning, the pain, the injustice? It's over. And what's the theme that's repeated over and over again? God saying, I will be glad and rejoice in my people. One of my favorite phrases is from uh, J.R. Tolkien, and he says, one of the highest joys is the praise of the praiseworthy. I've told you this story before. I was hanging out with some guys once, and they were really excited about the fact that uh, they got to hang out with Mike Trout. And uh, they said, Mike Trout, you, know, you guys know who he is, right? He's a decent baseball player. You know what baseball is, right, some of you? Okay. He's the best baseball player there is. Okay. He's also probably one of the nicest athletes there are. And so these guys were talking about how Mike Trout came in to hang out with these kids and sign stuff for him and how he stayed till the bitter end and he shook everybody's hand and he was so kind and they were just thrilled and that was, I would be thrilled by that too. But I was thinking, what is making these old men so giddy? They're like giggling in their seats. What is it? Mike Trout noticed them. In a way, don't you go, well... But see, he's, he's meaningful to them. He's notable to them. 
And the praise or being noticed by somebody that you find notable is one of life's greatest joys. Tell me it's not true. Tell me it's not true. If a child hears from their father, I love you and I'm proud of you, tell me that's not true. Or if you, maybe you're not into sports, you're into something else, somebody you look to as notable, important, valuable, if they know your name and they value you and they're glad in you, you will feel joy about it. Now try this on again. What if God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, sees your face and knows your name and is glad and rejoices in you? How would you feel in that moment? That is happiness. And that's what Jesus has won for us. A new earth with a new people and a totally restored relationship with God where he, we are glad and rejoice because of his joy and gladness in us. Does that count as light for you in the darkness? Does that count as a great victory? So this week we're going to celebrate Christmas. And many of us are Christians. And we're gonna have a good time with our family, I hope. I hope God gives that to you or people close to you. We're gonna probably give and receive some presents. I hope that's great. I hope they're not garage sale within the next, you know. I hope they make it a couple years. But when we're Christians celebrating Christmas, we can be realistic. You know, we've talked about how there's peace stamped on every Christmas card. Peace on earth, joy, we're here, it's Christmas. And there's kind of this thing in the culture where you pretend like everything's great. And guess what? Everything's not great. Amen? There's darkness. In my heart, in our society, in our lives, in our world, there's darkness. We're cut off from God in a way. The light has come. Light has come. And who is the light? It's Jesus. What do you do with light when you're in darkness? Have you ever gone caving before? I've been a couple times. It's a lot of fun as long as your headlamp is working. <laughs> I am never doing the scuba diving caving some people do. That's crazy. But can you imagine being in a cave and your light quit working? You got lost, you ran out of batteries. And you're in the darkness and you're crawling on hands and knees and you're, you're freaking out, and you have no idea where to go. You have no idea which way is up. You have no idea what left is, what right is. You're lost. You are in darkness. It's oppressive. You can feel it. It's over. And then you see a pinprick of light. What would you do? I know what you would do. You would do everything you could to get into that light. You would do everything you could, and as you move towards it, the light would get bigger, and it would get brighter, and you could hardly see, but that wouldn't stop you. You would keep going until you were full on into the light. If you respond to a king like this, who is light, what do you do with him? How do you respond to a king with a name like this? Number one, seek his light. Seek his light, move towards him. Try to know him, listen to him, engage with him, go further in. In Isaiah 55, the prophet says in verse six, seek the Lord while what? While he may be found. 
Call upon him. Why what? He's near. Now's your chance. Seek him. Go after him. How do you do it? Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. He'll abundantly pardon. Seek Jesus. Trust him. Turn to him. God will forgive you. He'll welcome you in. Seek the Lord. What else do you do with light? Any of you seen the moon lately? See the moon last night? Two nights ago, there was this ring around it. Did anybody else see that? Beautiful. There's something strange about the moon. It's beautiful and it's glowing, but where to get its light? Not from it, right? It reflects it from the sun. Come on, Christians. If we know the light, what should we look like? The light. Reflect his light. Reflect his beauty. And for Christmas, and here's a challenge for me and everybody else, that's about reflecting him in your relationships. Reflecting him in your relationships, your closest relationships, your informal relationships. Can people see Jesus in us? Do they hear about him in the midst of their darkness? Can we shine that light? Seek his light, reflect his light. Third thing I wanna give you. Yeah, do you hold hands with somebody and look at the lights? What do you do with pretty lights? I don't know. You stare at them. Let me try a better light. What do you do with sunsets? You stare at it. Why? Why do you stare at a sunset? It makes you feel small. And it's beautiful. I heard a pastor give an illustration once. Nobody goes on vacation to a room full of mirrors. We live in the world like we're all that in a bag of chips, right? Hey, everybody, check me out. But when you go on vacation, you don't go stare at yourself and go. You've got it going on. Oh, look at this angle. Hey. Nobody does that on vacation. You don't go look at yourself on vacation. What do you go look at? If it's my family, I want to go look at mountains or bison or grizzly bears or the ocean, or Hawaii, or a cliff, or at least Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> Can't get the other things in your budget. But you want to see something else. What you do with light is you adore it. You adore it. And here's why I'm closing with this. The only way you're going to reflect it and seek it is if you adore it. What does it mean to adore? We're gonna sing this in a second. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Adoring is the difference between a, yeah, I believe Christian facts and I'm a Christian. It's, yeah, I've heard some things and I'm generally a nice person and Jesus is everything. It's adoring him. It's taking seriously that he's the wonderful counselor you just want to get next to him and hear him and know him and know his love and relate with him and do it with others. To adore is to trust that he is the everlasting father, that benevolent king. You're his. You live for him. It's to worship and be satisfied that he's your great victory, that he's your harvest, that he's the spoils. And that's light in the darkness. 
no matter how dark it gets right now between whether you die or Jesus comes back, can anybody take this darkness from you? Who Jesus is. He is the light. He's the victory. It's not hopeless. You're not meaningless. You're loved. You can know him and reflect him in the world because your heart adores him. I hope you can adore Jesus this morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son. There is no one like him ever in history. So beautiful. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that as we see the darkness, our darkness, we would also hear this promise of your light and see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that we would, um, we would seek him, that we would reflect him mostly because we adore him and who he is. Be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.